Welcome to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I am Ramya Swayamprakash, constantly in an existential angst, uh, joined by my friend and co-host, Dr. Camden Bird from Eastern Illinois University. How are you, Camden? Uh, good. Um, you know, not currently going through the same sort of existential crisis or angst that you are, um, but I'm sure, you know, we could get there um, if we tried. And we must try. <laughs> um, how are you? I'm all right. Um, I'm excited to talk about the book today um, and to have our listeners listen in. Yeah, me too. It was, and it was a great conversation mm-hmm. uh, with Dr. Crystal Moten, who is a Chicago native. She's a public historian, a curator, and a writer who focuses on the intersection of race, class, and gender to uncover the hidden histories of black people in the Midwest. Uh, the recipient of numerous awards and honors, her research has appeared in books, journals, documentaries, and other media. Dr. Moten has taught at colleges and universities across the country, and prior to joining the Obama Foundation as the inaugural curator of collections of exhibitions, she worked as a curator of African American history in the Division of Work and Industry at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. She joined us to talk to, to, talk to us about her most recent book, which is titled Continually Working, Black Women, Community Intellectualism, and Economic Justice in Post-War Milwaukee, which was recently published by Vanderbilt University Press. Uh, Ramya, what did you, uh, I mean, there's many things to take away, but are there any things that you sort of left this conversation thinking about um, with Crystal? So I really appreciate the the turn that the podcast has taken in the last few episodes, especially in, in sort of conjunction with the book a brick uh, a brick and a bible um mm-hmm. you know i i thought crystal's book was very revealing in the places that we don't look for right um mm. both in the historical record but as just places of movement places of change and how important community is uh i think so much of you know intellectual history is is about big people but individuals and i think what's interesting what was interesting to me about the book and the conversation was just the emphasis on community, right? And thinking about intellectual history as a community project. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't often think about that. So to me, that really stood out. But also just the ways in which she talked about her archival sources. Uh, you know, who do we listen to in the archives? How do we find these cool people? Because they existed, they did their shit. And so now it's our job to find it, right? Yeah, I would agree. I, I, you know, it, it, the book is a great testament to um, researching and finding stories of activism and intellectualism in places that perhaps have not historically mm-hmm. been seen as sort of those spaces um, to find activism. And, you know, um, and in that sense, I mean, I think it's a it's a really a lesson for all listeners, for all researchers to, you know, revisit the archives, revisit the mm-hmm. collections and try to find uh, the stories that might not be sort of the, f- the first layer of this is what's hitting you in the face of, of, of what this collection is telling you. But, you know, sticking with the sources and continuing that research. Yeah, it's really great. And we need more, not less. Let's just do the thing uh, real quickly. Again, just a reminder, the music is uh, from the band Vansire, Rochester, Minnesota. We thank them for letting us use this music. You know, thank you. Um, otherwise, let's uh, let's just jump into it. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Crystal, thank you so much for joining us here on Heartland History. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we, we, we loved reading your book, and I'm, I'm really excited. Mm-hmm. We're really excited to talk to you about it um, today. And so maybe we just jump right into it. Yes, let's go. <laughs> um, in your book, uh, you're, you're really focused on uh, community intellectualism, which you argue has been absent from a lot of the work on grassroots organizers, which tend to focus on, you know, um, individuals and their leadership styles. I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about this approach, looking at community organizing, um, because I think it's really important and really interesting. Um, And and maybe you could just give us, you know, your journey, your intellectual journey to how you got to arriving and thinking about organizers in this way. Thank you so much. It's a great question. Um, And so just to note that I, as I was thinking about what I was seeing in the record in regards to how Black women were thinking about and strategizing and theorizing their Mm -hmm. own activism, I began to uh, notice, right, that they were engaging in intellectual practices and producing new ways of understanding and new ways of knowing about um, how to analyze and think about the structural conditions they were facing. When I began to think about the ways in which other knowledge production or intellectual um, activities were happening, what I noticed is that we had very good ways of understanding, for example, public intellectualism or thinking about, um, uh, you know, everyday intellectuals. But usually when we talked about intellectuals or intellectual history, it was the focus on an individual, right? So thinking about uh, Gramsci's understanding of, 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 you know, the grassroots organizer who is synthesizing and understanding um, the intellectual knowledge coming out of the social movement, but right, focus on this individual. But what I, what I was seeing as I was looking at Black women and their organizing was the ways in which they were grappling with their situations and trying to understand them together. And so I wanted a way for us to think about, well, what is the nature of this um of of intellectual knowledge production, intellectual activity, when we're thinking about when groups are coming together to do it. And so I came up with this this phrase, community intellectualism, but I wanna be clear that it's something that I was seeing in the historical record. And I just wanted a a, a new way to kind of separate it um, and to make it distinct from the traditional ways we've been understanding intellectual activity, intellectual thought, intellectual history, and the people who are usually ascribed the, you know, or, or, or termed the category intellectual. And so in, ter- in thinking about the intellectual journey that I had arriving, it was really understanding Black feminist theory, right? Especially in thinking about the ways in which Black feminist theorists privilege um, the everyday knowledge that everyday people have and bring to their understanding of the world. And so how can we think about that truly think about that in the historical perspective and begin to analyze that. And I do that by looking at social movements. As you were talking, and one of the things that struck me first when I'm reading your book, and I think throughout your book, was this attention to spaces where Black women were doing their work uh, of organizing and raising important questions of and about justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the spaces of community intellectualism, right? And so I wonder if you could, you know, speak to how you arrived at these spaces and how your treatment of these spaces changed over time. 
Yes, this is a, this is a great question. I was looking forward to answering it because answering it also kind of speaks to the evolution of the project. Um, and as for many, this is my first book and it's the book that I um, wrote after revising my dissertation. Right. And so answering this question kind of helps me kind of tell you about the journey from taking this book from dissertation to what it is now. And so when I was originally doing my research as a graduate student, I, I knew I was interested in the civil rights movement, of course. Um, I knew I was interested in thinking about women's activism and women's contributions to the civil rights movement. And I also knew I wanted to focus on the urban Midwest. I'm from Chicago. And so I knew there was a story about civil rights activism, about women's involvement, um, being that I was from Chicago, um, being that I was from the Midwest, but I just wasn't seeing it in the historiography. So I knew I wanted to focus on those things. When I got to Wisconsin as a graduate student, I also kind of began to read about Wisconsin history and learned about the importance of civil rights organizers and activists in Milwaukee. And there was some recent um, work that had just come out as well as a really seminal book in labor history that um, Black Milwaukee by Joe Trotter that had been out for decades. And so I knew there was also a story connecting civil rights and labor rights and worker rights. Um, but the, the missing part for me was thinking about gender, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking about um, gender and women's activism. And so the first version of this book or this manuscript, which was my dissertation, was really just focused on bringing Black women and Black women workers into the story of civil rights through this focus on Milwaukee, since it was heralded as kind of a working class paradise. In the book, I note that um, there were some workers, male workers who said, you know, we can get one job in the morning, quit it and get another in the afternoon. So prolific were the number of jobs that were available. But I was seeing in the record, black women not being able to access those jobs, right? And so originally the focus was on kind of just black women, uh, what were their, uh, what was the circumstance of their work situation and how were they trying to, um, to transform the urban industrial landscape? As I began thinking more about the spaces, right, of their work, which include, you know, um, a white middle class uh, social organization, a YWCA, which includes a beauty school, which includes um, uh, factories, which includes uh, the streets and the sidewalks of the welfare rights movement, and which includes uh, an economic justice organization, I began to, to notice that, yes, they were engaging in what we understand as kind of typical grassroots activism. But again, in these spaces, I saw the intellectual activity that usually is ascribed to other groups of people who have other identities. And I began to say, hey, like, why aren't we counting this activism that I'm seeing in this nonprofit, that I'm seeing in this beauty school, that I'm seeing on these shop floors? Why can't we understand and also analyze the intellectual component of this. And so when I, for example, when I was looking at the space of the Milwaukee Young Women's Christian Association, mm -hmm. I began to look at kind of quotidian things like meeting minutes, uh, mm -hmm. uh, correspondence, right? Um, notes that, you know, you could just like say, okay, that's just a record of what this organization was doing. But you also begin to see, especially when black women are writing the meeting minutes or, or are included in the correspondence, you begin to see their thinking about their working condition. 
And to me, that is worthy of analysis. Mm -hmm. And so um, the, the spaces really came about as I was looking in the archive, right? Seeing, you know, what's the record there, what's available for me to actually research and read about, which also has its limitations because of course there are, are spaces that are not captured the, mm -hmm. via the archive, right? But that, that's how I came and settled in on the spaces. First looking at economic justice and work. And then as I was looking at the spaces, I began to notice these intellectual activities. Traditionally, intellectualism is sort of regarded in, in very sort of like stale, old fashioned places, right? Like mm -hmm. these individuals. And I think, you know, you expand the definition, but also realize that like, yeah, at all levels of society and all avenues of uh, organizing, like people are thinking um, yes. and, and imagining sort of political activism yes. um, at all like varying levels of action. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and maybe that's like a good way to transition into... Um, you know, talking about the the Milwaukee branch of the YWCA. Yes. Um, I'm curious, how do the organizers that you're looking at the at the M Y W C A? Mm -hmm. How do they understand the broader political and economic landscape in Milwaukee? And how did their work um, epitomize this this community based intellectualism that you're exploring in your book? Yeah. So the, the, I love talking about the Milwaukee Y um, because it just shows it allows me to. Uh, illustrate so many great points about, you know, what we're seeing, about what we're seeing Black women see, understand, think about, and struggle with. And so when, when I first think about the Milwaukee Why, I think about my first time I encountered their, their the, the remnants of Black women's activism in the record. And it was just really small, short article in um, a local newspaper in the 1940s that said basically that the Milwaukee Y was kind of a model of interracial activity. And I was really interested in that. You know, this is 1940s, you know, Jim Crow America. And here we are in the urban north, you know, the Milwaukee Y being heralded as this, you know, this beacon of interracial activity that other organizations should emulate. And I was thinking, oh, well, I know the Milwaukee Y is this kind of traditional middle class institution, um, right, that for, for decades, Black women saw the Y as a way to um, to 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 use the resources of this institution to help better their communities, right? And so there's this tradition of Black women um, um, participating, leading, and being involved in the Y. And so I knew I knew that about the Y. But in thinking about the way in which the Milwaukee Y first engaged Black women, it was actually through a partnership with the Milwaukee Urban League. And so the Milwaukee Urban League was new in this new on the scene in the 19 in 1919. And I should take a step back. The Milwaukee Y had been in um, Milwaukee and in Wisconsin since the 1890s. The Milwaukee Y um, had, of course, as its mission, kind of in engaging and interacting with working women white working women in particular. They had social activities, they had religious activities, they also had a residence where white working women could come, you know, rent a room and be in a safe, you know, Christian place, right, as they worked, you know, in, in Milwaukee's urban, um, urban factories. And so in 1919, the Milwaukee Urban League comes or branch of the Urban League comes to Milwaukee. And what the Y thinks is that, oh, we can partner with the Urban League who focuses on Black workers to try to create a program 
for black women workers within the Y. And so they do that um, with the with the Milwaukee Urban League. They create um, a club for black working women called La Circle. And what they begin to realize is that, yes, we have this club, but we have other ways we want to engage not only black women, but the black community. And to do that, we need to hire um, a black worker. And so they hire a black woman worker, Bernice Copeland, who becomes Bernice Copeland Lindsay. And she becomes the woman who um, runs the black um, programs um, through the Milwaukee Y. Now, the interesting thing about Bernice Copeland Lindsay is that, you know, she realizes, well, wait a minute. I can't in, I can't engage an entire black community by myself, right? <laughs> you know that's just too much for one person, and so she um, she's she's managed, she's supervised, I should say, by a white woman, um, and she, and she and this white woman who supervises her, you know, they have a relationship where um, Bernice Copeland Lindsay can really kind of talk to this woman um, and, and and share with her the resources that are needed to run, um, you know, the services they want to run to reach the black community, which includes permanent, a permanent space for, um, for the, uh, for the black, uh, work or the black activities in the actual black community, hiring more people, getting more money, right? She's able to successfully get her boss on her side. Um, and eventually they hire more people, including full-time and part-time people. And so, it, it, several things happen when these black women are working with the Y. Number one, they're they're understanding and realizing, you know, what a, a very rapidly expanding black population needs from both the city and from nonprofits. Right, a, a, an expanding uh, black population needs access to housing, and so under. Bernice Copeland Lindsay's uh, uh, leadership and with the staff she has, they create this housing and rooms registry. And so that's kind of one temporary thing they do. They also understand that there are structural issues with housing in the city. And so also with their work, they do this survey of rental housing in the city to show how dilapidated the housing is, right? So on the one hand, they're trying to provide access to people to get housing. And on the other hand, they're critiquing, right, um, the housing landscape in the city, right? And so even with that small example, you see their activism and you see how they're thinking about and critiquing, critiquing as a form of intellectual activity, Mm -hmm. right, what they're noticing about the landscape. And so several examples of that abound just in looking at the Milwaukee Y. And so that's what I was seeing. I was seeing Black women's, you know, their work but then I was also seeing how they're thinking about the larger structural issues in the city and looking at the Milwaukee Why is a really good way to look at that because in thinking about the Milwaukee Why, they're looking at their own, they're looking at the structural conditions of black people in the city. They're also looking at their own working conditions. Mm-hmm. And then they're also from their position as members or participants or working or workers of the Y, they're also getting involved in other um, organizing activities, like from uh, being involved in uh, political uh, clubs, being involved in, in in local housing clubs, to also you know um, running their own beauty schools, topic of chapter two, etc. Mm-hmm. And so um, you see all of this, right? With just one example, it's so rich. So mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. and you know. Speaking of, of the spaces and places that women are in or not, um, throughout the book, we're introduced to 
women who are met with the Jim Crow job market in Milwaukee, the mm-hmm. legal, social, and cultural structures that combine to exclude black workers from accessing, participating, and prog- progressing in certain job sectors. You find activism throughout Milwaukee, but focus on the work of black beauticians, right? Uh, in chapter two, especially, uh, and their efforts to change these systems. So how did the Jim Crow job market affect black beauticians in Milwaukee and what form did their activism take to overcome and change these systems? So one thing I like to note about the Jim Crow job system, which I, um, in some ways I take for granted, right, in terms of labeling it the Jim Crow job mm-hmm. system, especially because when we think about the civil rights movement, we t- general understanding, right, is that Jim Crow is something of the South. And so with my work and then with the work of um, a group of scholars who are really trying to expand our understanding of Jim Crow, we make the argument that Jim Crow is actually a national phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. It's a national cancer. And Mm -hmm. so my use of Jim Crow is signaling that, yes, in, in Milwaukee, we can understand this system of uh, worker exploitation um, as Jim Crow, right? So that's one part of it, so Jim Crow. But then the other part of it, the job system, I wanted it to, I wanted folks to understand that this is um, a combination of, uh, of factors, right? Not uh, um, one worker's individual beliefs, not um, uh, um, one companies, you know, erroneous policies, right? But it's a system, a structure that Mm -hmm. replicates itself, not only in um, private companies, but you could also see the Jim Crow job system being upheld by the state, right? In the bureaucracy that happens when workers try to contest, right, the discrimination that they're experiencing, and so, again, when I think about the Jim Crow job system, it's a structure. Um, you can see it in the in the experiences of, you know, why workers and the experiences of the black beauticians and the experiences of uh, folks in factories. Um, but in thinking about the Jim Crow job system as it relates to beauticians, again, the, the point that I'm trying to make here is showing how basically a bureaucratic racism that happens as beauticians are trying to force the state of Wisconsin, who is forcing them to become licensed, what they come against up against in that process, right? And so, for example, in um, early part of the 20th century, um, across the nation, with, the, with the, um, the emergence of the FDA, there began to be, be become so many kind of rules and regulations, not only as it resulted to kind of food and drug, but also cosmetological practices. Mm-hmm. And so the impact of that were that states began to create their own regulations um, in accordance with, you know, the FDA rules and regulations um, that m- required then people who were engaged in, say, cosmetology to become licensed. And so you have this happening as a result of the FDA Act, but then you're also having customers come into the to the Wisconsin Board of Health saying, hey, you know, this cosmetologist is really like operating out of her kitchen, one, and two, like burning my scalp, you know, stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the <laughs> Department of Health is like, we have to have a way to make sure people who are um, engaged in cosmetological work 
actually have the skills and experience. And so they begin to blanketly require right a licensure process. What happens in Milwaukee um, is that they begin to uh, contact people who have been operating as beauticians prior to the new regulation to say, hey, like there's this new regulation. If you want to continue operating, you know, you must get licensed. Mm -hmm. What began to happen is that even though they were, you know, supposedly, you know, publicizing these new, these new rules and regulations, there still remained this large group of black women who were unlicensed. And so they really wanted to kind of get these women licensed. And so what they did is they enlisted the help of black women who had went through the licensure process. And there was a there was one woman, her name, Maddie DeWeese, who understands, hey, I've been licensed. I know all of these unlicensed black beauticians and I want to help them. Let me start a black beauty school. This is important because at this time, beauty education was segregated, right? So there were very few schools that would allow Black beauticians to come and, and get the, the training to then take the licensing examination. And so what we see is Maddie DeWeese opening up the school in an environment that, number one, already provided, was, was uh, constraining for black women beauticians to become licensed. The other thing that we see that really illustrates the Jim Crow job system, especially as we understand the bureaucratic racism that was a part of it, was the fact that, again, the State Department of Health through the cosmetology division was also interested in making sure beauty schools, right, were teaching beauticians the right things. Right. And so they would just pop up and surprise beauty schools and do surprise inspections to make sure that the, that, that the school met the health and sanitary codes, to make sure that the teachers were teaching the correct methods and to also observe the students. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you had um, beauty school, uh, you had, excuse me, Department of, of Health uh, inspectors just popping up it would behoove a beauty school to develop a relationship with these inspectors such that they can get the information they need to pass on to their students to kind of allow, be able to allow them to become licensed. But what you see in the, in the process of Presley Beauty School, which I forgot to mention two minutes ago, um, Presley Beauty <laughs> School, the Black Beauty School, who I, I write about in Chapter 2, you see the ways in which stereotypes... Um, uh, unfold in the actual um, relationship between the state inspector and the beauty school. You see in the, the state records, which are available through the Wisconsin Historical Society, how state inspectors kind of demean the Black women. And I'm not going to repeat, you know, the things that are in that record, mm -hmm. but you see um, their, the beliefs they held about Black workers. It, they wrote it down. They were not shy and in, in writing down like their stereotypical and racist beliefs. And so as a black beautician, as the black beauty school owner, Maddie DeWeese is trying to kind of basically just teach beauticians how to pass this exam. They're also having to deal with uh, these racist state inspectors who then, they then determine whether this beauty school is 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 upholding regulation even though they have these racist beliefs right and so 
Black beauticians are encountering racism. They're encountering the difficulty of uh, taking an examination that's based on socially and culturally kind of homogenous understandings of, of hair and how to do hair and having to navigate all of that just because they want to be licensed to be able to, you know, become a beautician. And so again, like in this example, I think you see quite clearly in, in unexpected ways, the ways in which the Jim Crow job system operates, even though like when we think of beauty beauticians and beauty work and hairdressing, you think of it as a like a, a, a pretty autonomous and kind of independent way of working, right? Where you determine, you direct um, your own work. But in the case of this period in the late 1930s, early 1940s, we're seeing the ways in which the state mm -hmm. prohibits and inhibits people from actually even uh, obtaining this 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 autonomous um, uh, independent work through the licensing and examination process, and in um, in the later chapters too, you find right sort of this organizing. You find that Black women are central to interracial coalition building uh, right. around many Milwaukee-based organizations uh, focused mm -hmm. on welfare rights in the 1970s. Yes. Yes. You discuss a number of organizations, uh, but I was particularly interested in the Milwaukee County Welfare Rights Organization. You note that they're yes. organizing, uh, their organizing took many forms, including direct action protests, which are really interesting to read about, as well as um, education and storytelling. In fact, you discuss a book of essays uh, that the group published by um, W.W. Norton and Co., right? In 1972, titled Welfare Mothers Speak. We ain't going to shuffle anymore by like I, I already put in on interlibrary loan. This book's coming because I'm like fascinated by that. Yes. Um, but anyway, uh, it, the book itself outlines like the experiences of uh, many women as they navigated poverty and racist structures. And I'm wondering if you could talk more about this group and how um, this form of, of, of coalition building, but also sort of militant motherhood shifts our mm -hmm. understanding of community organizing um, during the time period you're looking at. I, I sure can. And, you know, you know that I do mention a, a number of grassroots welfare rights organizations in this chapter. And I do so because I want to make the point that while the Milwaukee County Welfare Rights Organization becomes kind of the, the well-known organization, mm -hmm. that it comes together because a coalition, well, because a group of grassroots neighborhood organizations mm -hmm. had already existed in the city. And so we can't understand the MCWRO without understanding those neighborhood uh, organizations that already previously existed. They only, the, the, the Milwaukee County Welfare Rights Organization only is able to exist because of this, this, this work that welfare rights organizing organizers had already been doing. Mm -hmm. It's also important to note that um, these welfare rights organizers, um, many of them have been involved in the Milwaukee civil rights movement. And so they're coming um, from kind of a radical civil rights organizing tradition and then parlaying that, using those lessons mm -hmm. to inform what they're doing with welfare rights. And so, you know, I kind of have to talk about those early organizations mm -hmm. and there's a lot of them, right? Um, before I can get to the Milwaukee County Welfare Rights Organization. And so like when I was, when I was researching uh, MCWRO, what I began to see, especially in the secondary literature, and I write about this in the book, is that many people use their book, Welfare Mothers Speak Out, as just like, you know, as, as, as evidence, right? Mm -hmm. 
trying to understand, you know, what was, what did welfare rights activism look like? What was this impetus? Because there are several essays written by welfare rights activists themselves included in that, in that book. And so I could see why scholars, you know, simply use the book as a primary source. I was interested in thinking, yes, it's a primary source. Yes, I can, yes, I can look at it that way. But what happens when we think about the intellectual history of this book and also the intellectual history of these people who wrote it. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that was what I was trying to understand and explore. Like, how did this book come into being? You know, what other uh, radical writing traditions were happening during this time? Was this an isolated example? Mm-hmm. And what I found was that no, right? It's not an mm-hmm. isolated example mm-hmm. because in thinking about the social movements of the 1960s and 1970s, reading and writing and studying were a crucial part of activist traditions, right? Mm-hmm. And so again, thinking about the civil rights movement where you had your study groups, thinking about the feminist women's movement where people were coming to together to read and understand and and form an analytic about what they are experiencing like this is this is this is the tradition that they were enveloped in right so then it makes sense that being enveloped in this radical activist tradition that a book would come out of it however because we don't typically look to um, uh, people living in poverty as being a source of knowledge production we didn't see this as intellectual history. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to make the point that this was intellectual history. Mm-hmm. Now, and even before I get to kind of my analysis of the book, I was really purposeful in that I wanted to really talk about, you know, again, you know, what they were engaged in, what they were doing, what they were strategizing for, what they were analyzing. And so in thinking about um, the welfare rights organization, I kind of thought about this idea of militant motherhood. We understand uh, historian Patrick uh, Jones talks about the, the Milwaukee civil rights movement as kind of this uh, movement that was infused with a militant masculinity, right? Thinking about the ways in which uh, mm-hmm. um, a civil rights and black power uh, um, um, ethos that was infused in that movement kind of undergirded what was happening in Milwaukee. And so he looks at kind of a militant masculinity, a la, you know, Steve Estes, his book, I Am a Man, right? And so Mm -hmm. we see that happening in Milwaukee. I was interested in understanding, okay, again, when we think about gender as a category of of analysis, how can we understand um, what women were doing, right? Mm -hmm. And so I began to think about the idea of militant motherhood, right? thinking about the radical ways um, welfare rights activists who were mainly black mothers um, were analyzing and then also out in the streets with their activism. And so it was this radical way of acting and being, but also that centered their identity as mothers, centered their desire to take care of their family, centered um, the responsibility they felt Um, to have the resources they needed to provide for their families and not in a way that was, you know, wanting to accept charity. They said, if we thought about raising children as a central project of being a citizen in this country, raising strong, healthy, um, engaged citizens, that is work that should be recognized. And so we are not asking for a handout. We're asking for the resources we need to help raise you know, healthy, engaged citizens. And so it becomes a way to understand why they were so adamant, why they were so active 
in pressing for the resources they needed. They understood that other groups pressed for the resources they needed. They understood that other groups got tax credits and tax kickbacks, you know. And so they were like, mm-hmm. well, if we're thinking about um, thinking about this and, and really being honest, then we should have the resources we need because we didn't create poverty. We didn't create discrimination on the urban industrial landscape. Right. And so what do we need to 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 help? Uh, what do we need to support our families? And so I think using this idea of militant motherhood mm-hmm. really helps connect the civil rights uh, strategic organizing with the focus on 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 moms and gender. Yeah. And, and along those lines, right? you mean, like you, over the course of your book, which really is sort of the 40s up until like sort of the, the end of the 20th century and, and even into yeah. the 21st century as well. But I'm struck mm-hmm. with the way that. activism and community organizing had changed over the course of that time period, which I think reflects, you know, like political shifts, but like the shifting political economy in Milwaukee, in Wisconsin, uh, and the nation over the course of Mm -hmm. several decades. Um, Mm -hmm. Your your book concludes uh, with the Wisconsin branch of Project Equality that operated Mm -hmm. in the closing decades of the 20th century. And you write, quote, Project Equality's beginning coincided with deindustrialization and a conservative backlash that made fighting for fair employment an uphill battle in the 1970s. You continue to note that, quote, by the 1980s, many former freedom fighters believed their civil rights gains of the 1960s were being eroded on the federal level. And I'm curious, how did activists sort of interpret these larger political and economic changes, and how did they respond? I mean, what do these larger forces how do these larger forces still shape sort of the inequalities that exist uh, in Milwaukee in the, the late 20th, but even today? Yeah, and this is such a great question because one of the other things that I have been thinking about as I, you know, continue to read and understand how we think about civil rights movement history is that Mm -hmm. we have this very static understanding of civil rights history. And then also the strategies that activists used, right. To, to, that they deployed when engaged in civil rights activism. And so it's marching, it's protest, it's fighting for the right to vote. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, sit-ins, right. We have a very narrow understanding of what civil rights activism is. And so, as you note, when we tr- when we look at change over time, you can't help but notice how activists are changing and rearranging mm-hmm. their strategies based on the conditions that they are experiencing. And so, if you're in the 1970s in you know a post Civil Rights Act era, will you necessarily be engaged in a sit-in or a march, or will you be kind of updating your strategy? based on the circumstance, based on the landscape in which you find yourself. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that, that, that is obvious. Like just looking at what the activists are doing, they're changing their strategy based on <laughs> what, mm-hmm. they're, what they're understanding mm-hmm. and seeing on the ground, right? And so that's, that, that's, that's the example of Project Equality. Project Equality kind of um, emerges, and it emerges actually out of Chicago with branches that began in Detroit and St. Louis and then kind of um, gets more nationwide as time progresses. But it, it emerges in this post-Civil Rights Act moment. And so activists are no longer kind of in this moment fighting for Civil Rights Act. They are fighting to make the Civil Rights Act real. Mm-hmm. And so then mm-hmm. how do they do that? 
they begin to understand, and this is the women of Project Equality, they begin to see and understand that, hey, like, in, the, in a pre-civil rights era, like, we were kind of focused on kind of the Black worker, right? Getting the Black worker into the job. Well, now the Black worker technically has the job or can get the job. Wouldn't it make more sense to kind of focus also on the actual work place or or, or or the policies and not to say they weren't doing this pre-civil rights act but what what project equality really forces the issue on is how does the workplace need to change in order to again continue to um, increase the number of black workers in the workplace and then also change their experience within the workplace and so they shift the focus from the worker to the business and that is really, 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 really important. And so Project Equality does this hard administrative work of going to businesses, asking mm-hmm. to see all of their written policies, analyzing those written policies, and then saying, hey, well, you got this equal uh, equal employment opportunity uh, sign on your door, but your policy doesn't match that. And in fact, your policy... Um, is, 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 is yielding the exact opposite, right? Mm-hmm. And so how can we work with you to make this policy a reality? How can we work with you to make the Civil Rights Act a reality? And so for Project Equality, <clears throat> it's not about marching. It's not about protesting. It's about going into these businesses and calling out these racist mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. really management people right you know people who are in the management executive levels of these companies and saying hey you got you got some hypocrisy happening here we're mm-hmm. not seeing how your policies actually correlate to equal employment and so let's let's um let's work on that right and so again project equality is really it emerges in the 1970s but then what you begin to see is by the 1980s, um, because there is kind of a, a conservative um, um, uh, retrenchment of many of the civil rights gains that activists had just fought for, we're seeing that kind of, uh, we're seeing a retrenchment of that in this very conservative era. And one example is the way in which the Civil Rights Commission kind of becomes just, um, you know, just a parrot of, of conservative politics, right? And that it's really not a place anymore where um, where civil rights um, gains and civil rights action and activity um, could actually progress. Mm-hmm. And so then you have kind of project equality and civil rights activists in this, um, in this milieu trying to figure out, again, what do we need to do in this moment to address a reversal of civil rights gains. And for some of them, it is like, okay, well, let's rethink marching, let's rethink protesting, or, you know, let's let's create an avenue for Black people, for workers to show, to tell, to testify to the fact that, you know, mm-hmm. we are now experiencing, right, our own civil rights being eroded. And so that's what um, uh, Betty Thompson does through her work with PE. She helps to kind of develop this um, civil rights commission where folks all over the country can testify, right, to the ways in which their rights are being eroded in this 1980s, 80s moment, right? But then again, like, it, it was so hard to end this book <laughs> because it's just like, okay, mm-hmm. Project Equality in Wisconsin is in existence to the early 2000s, but I just had to like stop it. Like I just, I just could not keep, <laughs> yeah. keep writing, right? But I mean, what we notice is that again, um, 
activists are responding to the environment and in which they're living and, and so um what we what we see is that like the the struggle continue albeit it wasn't the, the the same one as you know i i lay out in the 1940s mm-hmm. but you see the ways in which the urban industrial uh, employment landscape you know it, it 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 retracts and contracts and not only for again you know um but but for also for kind of black men whereas in an earlier period black men were able to become the industrial worker and and reap the benefits of um you know upgrading their class standing. But now we're seeing Black men losing their industrial jobs. We're seeing the economy turn from um, a manufacturing or industry turn from manufacturing industry to more social, social, excuse me, more service industry, right? And so you see in these low paying jobs with no benefits that kind of entrap people in, in cycles of poverty. And so you're seeing that happen um, in 1980s, 1990s, and we're still in this moment. The thing that also happens that I don't speak much about um, is the way, two things. One, um, the, the ways in which mass incarceration in Milwaukee becomes a component of kind of this declining social and economic possibility. And this but this this affects um, Black men in terms of them, them being in prison, but also Black mm-hmm. families as they deal with the impact right of their of their male relatives being imprisoned and so that's on um on the one hand and i don't i don't talk much about um mass incarceration and so you know so we're seeing all of that uh, happening and i had a second point but it it escaped me so maybe i'll remember it but we're seeing that happen Mm -hmm. in um in this moment and to me it kind of it, it, it becomes kind of thinking about jobs, thinking about a lack of access to quality education, uh, thinking about, especially in, in a COVID moment, thinking about the lack of access to health care. All of these have these roots, right, in mm-hmm. this late great migration period where the city failed to create the structural uh, security mm-hmm. net for an expanding uh, Milwaukee population that we're now seeing, right, the the repercussions of that and 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 we're seeing the ways in which black folks still are struggling right um for for to survive right in this urban uh landscape no longer industrial but Mm -hmm. still urban yeah i was just thinking of the legacies of bureaucratic racism right Mm -hmm. um <laughs> although, although I'll I'll say I'll I'm sorry to interrupt you I'll say one thing about the bureaucratic racism um every time I talk about bureaucratic racism People are like, yeah, like that's like when we think about the ways in which the state uh, mm-hmm. creates policies, create regulations, mm-hmm. create difficulties that slow or stop people's ability to write progress in the ways they want. And so that could it could be related to jobs. It could be related to health care, any type of access that you're trying. Did you have to go to the IDs, you know, like mm-hmm. any type of access where you need the state to act in the ways in which racism and prejudice inform the -hmm. state's actions. Like people are like, yes, bureaucratic racism. That's the Mm -hmm. word for it. Right. It just, it just, it resonates so much, not only historically, but um, in this contemporary moment that I just, I was struck that um, like I could find examples so clear um, Mm -hmm. in the record. Yeah. I mean that, that, that phrase is going to keep it is is in my head now. It's just, it's going to live there forever. I'm teaching a class on identity and we talk a lot. Um, it's, it's, it's a class on 
identity and sort of life journeys. And I'm teaching mm-hmm. it through the lenses of immigration and race. And we talk a lot about this, right? The spaces mm-hmm. that that we don't feel like we want to be out in simply because the structures are so oppressive. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's such a big fight to get even the smallest thing out. It can start, right? So whether it's it's a driving driver's license or whatever it is, right? Like the small and the big things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're just written out of it. And it's just so oppressive to even be in that space and to ask to be treated as a human being um, that you'd rather not bother, right? Right, It's just like, why bother? I just don't want to deal with this anymore, right? Exactly. yeah, so this is just going to live in my head forever, and mm-hmm. like I'm going to bring it up in every class. So yeah, and uh, the other point that I that I was been I've been thinking about, um, and y- your your comment just now um, is is bureaucratic racism as it connects to time and the mm-hmm. understanding of how much time mm-hmm. people have to actually deal with the state, mm-hmm. right? And so you know the the state. This, and especially when you think about time as money, right? Time as a resource. The state expects people to have the time to deal with its BS, mm-hmm. right? And when you think about um, that and you add a racial lens to it, what you begin to see is that the time that it takes to do any administrative task, whether it be to apply for a cosmetology license um, or to get your ID or to get a birth certificate, right? Because you need to provide evidence of your age and where you were born, right? The time that it takes to do those seemingly simple tasks could be the time in which you lose a job, Mm -hmm. could be the time, right? In which uh, something drastic happens to your family that could have been prevented had you had income, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but the state, the state doesn't care. The state is just like, Mm -hmm. well, we got these rules. Yeah, we got these regulations. And also guess what? They are race blind, right? And we're just mm-hmm. like, you know, that, that you, you may say they're race blind, but the impact of them um, are not race neutral. And so, I mean, you know, I could go again, go on and on and on and on about bureaucratic racism um, and the ways in which it affects, you know, not only black people, but people of color, but then also um, people um, who are poor, people who are unhoused, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so it just remains such um, an enlightening and illuminating way to understand um, how those folks um, uh, engage with the state, right? And, mm-hmm. and the constraints of that. Um, but this also makes me think of like, the sheer act of voting, right? Like, yes. Who has the bloody time to go vote? Right? And especially when when the hours are during the time where mm-hmm. you're working. And now you can kind of argue that all voting hours are working hours mm-hmm. because, you know, which group of workers, there's so many groups of workers who work all times of the day. You know, why don't we have more expansive opportunities for engaging in in, in the right we have, right, to vote, mm-hmm. to elect our, our leaders, right? Why is it constrained, you know, within this time that doesn't work? you know, for all voters, right? It just, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. It's just like, I have to take off work yeah. to go vote. And, and some people don't, you know, luckily I have the luxury yeah. that my employer is like, yeah, you will give you three hours. But why does it take three hours? But, you know, mm-hmm. we'll give you three hours to go vote. But, you know, your everyday worker who's working, uh, you know, who's doing shift work, they don't have three hours to take off because that means that's three hours worth of pay that they don't have. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and on that bright note, 
um, <laughs> on on the pod, we've been like on a mission of sorts to step away from whitewashing the Midwest, right? Um, and this is especially true in the last few episodes. And I'm glad okay. we've been able to do this. Um, you know, we want to bring our listeners to and the public at large. Um, we want to bring to them the richness and the depth of the social and cultural tapestry in the Midwest without taking away the complexities and challenges as well as, mm -hmm. you know, perpet the sort of persistent questioning of power and economic asymmetries. Uh, we want them to rethink what it means to be a Midwesterner and, you know, what the Midwest even means. So to you, um, we ask today, uh, what, where and who is the Midwest? Oh, so, you know, one of the things that I think about when I think about the Midwest is I think about how folks understand the Midwest and that typically is this kind of homogenous place, right? It's flyover land, right? It's, you know, um, you know, white, right? As you, as you noted, but to me, the Midwest is really um, heterogeneous. It's really diverse. And I'm not even just talking about kind of, you know, um, ethnic diversity. I'm even talking about within various groups, right? So when I think about um, the Black Midwest, I can't even say there's a one Black Midwest, right? Especially mm -hmm. when I think about the ways in which um, uh, immigration has, has expanded our understanding of, quote, Black, unquote, right? You can't even mm -hmm. say that the Black Midwest is kind of uh, a Midwest of Southern migrants, right? Who who come to the Midwest mm -hmm. during the, the first and, and second great migration. You can't even say that. And I don't think you can, you ever have been able to say that, especially if you think about the history of, of migration and immigration uh, to the Midwest. And so for me, the Midwest is very heterogeneous in thinking about kind of broad categories of race and ethnicity, and then even within those categories. And I think it would behoove us to understand it that way. Um, I think when we when we think about our field, Midwestern studies and Midwestern history, you know, we always are trying to kind of pin down and nail down, what is the Midwest? Because we're trying to prove its significance. But I mm -hmm. think the significance of, 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 of a regional understanding of this part of the country is that it is so diverse. And then when we think about the Midwest as being so diverse, then we can understand this nation, right, more mm -hmm. expansively, more broadly. I also understand that and many times, you know, the Midwest acts as the canary in the minefield, right? What happens in the Midwest, what we see going on here kind of explains, um, you know, larger uh, national trends, but we tend to ignore them because we uh -huh. don't, we don't, we don't see the Midwest as significant. Um, and so I think when we begin to not only kind of look historically, um, but also connect that history to the contemporary, we begin to understand how important the Midwest is. And I, I focus on the Midwest, you know, for economics and worker history, but it, it expands when you think about cultural history, you know, when we think about uh, broader um, kind of things and questions, the Midwest is it, but, you know, folks would debate us. I'm not here to debate. Mm -hmm. um, and so then where is the Midwest? That's an interesting, that's an interesting point. And, you know, I am not so um, bound up on kind of geographical boundaries. I like to think of the Midwest. I connect again, because I'm a, a labor person. I like to think about kind of the, the industrial heartland 
of the country. And so for me, mm-hmm. like you could, you could de- definitely Ohio, but you might even expand a little bit into Pennsylvania, right? Thinking mm-hmm. about where mm-hmm. where we are. And so I'm less concerned about geography, especially when thinking about um, about work. The other thing that I always like to answer when someone asks me, where's the Midwest? I like to get real local. So I get like to Chicago on the South side to my favorite restaurant, or one of them, which is like Harold's hmm. chicken. Like, and so thinking about like Harold's chicken on the mm-hmm. South side of Chicago, mm-hmm. that is like quintessential Midwest with mild sauce. And then who to you is the Midwest <laughs> is, you know, it's like, I again, think about this in terms of black women and black women's history and black women's activism. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's my grandmom who my late grandmom who, um, you know, who was a postal worker, right? Who I didn't really understand like her her connections to broader trends in black history until after unfortunately she passed away. But she was like a part of this 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 group of working women who worked in the in the postal um, industry. I think about my great aunts who um, you know moved to Chicago during the the Great Migration, who decided, right, that the urban Midwest and to Chicago specifically was the place where they wanted to try to make real their freedom dreams, right? And I think about how that set up, you know, generations of, of women, including me and my family, to, to resist and persist, you know, despite all of these odds. And so all of that to me mm-hmm. is is the Midwest. And it's it's different, it's diverse, it's not just one thing, but I think that's the beauty of focusing on the Midwest. It's, it's enough diversity here to kind of kind of be exploring and rethinking and recasting multiple kind of fields of history for time to come. Our listeners are sort of geared into thinking about Midwestern history, Midwestern mm-hmm. studies, but um, but also, you know, a popular audience mm-hmm. as well. I, I'm wondering, what are you what are you hoping, you know, listeners as they all run out and go buy your book after this episode? Right. Yes. You know, what are they what are they what are you hoping that they'll take away um, from your book? How does this shift our understanding of Milwaukee and the Midwest? Yeah. So the the two main things. One, I want to expand people's understanding of the civil rights movement. And I want to expand their understanding of the components of the civil rights movement. And so not just thinking about politics and voting, but that work was a crucial part of what activists were struggling for during the civil rights movement. And it just wasn't happening, you know, in Memphis in the late 1960s, when we get to the sanitation worker strike, Mm -hmm. it was happening way before then. And it was happening with a with a diverse group of activists. And so civil rights includes work. And then the second thing is that um, civil rights includes the Midwest, right, is Mm -hmm. not just Southern, right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those are the two things work, uh, that the Midwest is a crucial um, under, part of understanding the Midwest. And then I'm sorry, there is one more thing. How could I forget? The community intellectualism, right? Mm-hmm. Understanding and rethinking our way of, 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 of acknowledging and learning from activists um, and thinking about that in a, in, a, in a communal sense and not from an individual perspective. Speaking of work, though, what are you working on next? Yes. Oh, my gosh. You know, as, as many... <laughs> Folks, historians, academics, you know, you got so many things you're working on next. And so um, I am a curator um, by profession right now. And so I, I'm working on a, on a huge museum who will op- that will open up on the south side of Chicago in two years, focusing on former uh, President Barack Obama. So that's taken up most of my time. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I am working on with a group of uh, curators, um, it's really thinking about public history, but thinking about public history in the ways in which public history intersects with black feminism. 
and mm-hmm. looking for historical um, evidence, right, of the ways in which uh, public historians, curators, museum workers were engaging with Black feminist theory um, in practice through their work. And so kind of two very different projects, um, but very interesting. <laughs> yeah, both sound fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Crystal, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. It really yes. was a, a pleasurable and interesting conversation. Yes, lots to think about. Thank you. Thank you. I was so happy to be there.